What did you eat for breakfast? I had a smoothie is what I had for breakfast. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 128. This episode is sponsored by Ignite Your Music Career. You may remember in episode 90, I chatted to Craig Dodge about sync licensing and how he makes a living through writing music for TV, video games, and film. Musicians all over the world subscribe to Ignite Your Music Career and earn more royalties, more upfront sync fees, and more recurring revenue from their music. Whether you're a composer, singer-songwriter, band, beatmaker, or instrumentalist, your music can be earning you more money. Internationally acclaimed composer, musician, and music educator Craig Dodge has licensed his music in more than 1,000 TV show episodes, films, video games, and ads all over the world, and he will show you how you can too. Ignite gives you the information you need in a simple, accessible format, and you learn at your own pace. For just $6 a month, you get a video lesson each week on topics related to music licensing, from writing techniques to how to find your markets, and everything in between. You also get tools and activities to build the skills you need to be successful, and each lesson includes a royalty-free sound pack to download and use in your own music. The key to success in the music business today is to diversify your sources of revenue. Ignite will show you how. For more information or to subscribe to Ignite, visit the website at taris-studios.com or click the link on musiconyourownterms.com. Chatting with me this episode is singer-songwriter Ken Tizard, who has had an extremely varied career playing in the Canadian punk scene, playing with The Watchmen, touring with his brother-in-law Ian Thornley and opening for Nickelback in stadiums, traveling with Ron Hines on his final tour, and now finding success as a country folk artist. We learn about Ken's experience with transitioning from live music to streaming on social media during lockdown, how he ended up getting into music and playing bass in the first place, and how the experience with Ron Hines has inspired him to keep learning new approaches to his craft. Once in a while, I will give a shout out to another band the audience of the person I'm interviewing might like to check out. This episode, it's the turn of previous guest Tyler and the Train Robbers that I talked to back in episode 91, who I feel have a similar narrative style to that of Ken's music. You're listening to TTR's last album, Best of the Worst Kind which also includes the song The Ballad of Blackjack Ketchum, a song that chronicles the storied past of Tyler's real-life train robber ancestor. Well, my daddy always said you're only as good as who you're hanging with. So I was hanging with the best of the worst kind. And my first scream was on... Look out for the new album, Non-Typical Find, which will be released on Friday of this week. If you enjoy the podcast and want to show your support, I'd be really grateful if you would consider signing up for the mailing list to stay in the loop with everything going on with the show. Just head over to musiconyourownterms.com and click the link. While you're there, you can also visit the store and grab some merch, or just buy me a coffee and help out with the running costs of the show. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by singer-songwriter Ken Tizard, who's been with The Watchmen, Thornley, Ron Hines, and now he does his solo thing. So welcome, and how are you doing? 
I'm doing pretty great. It's uh, the weather. I was just saying uh, the weather changed here today. Suddenly summer is here and it feels really good. I got out and did some yard work, which was mm-hmm. uh, which was a really nice thing to, to spend the afternoon doing. So nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm good today. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, we're here to really talk about your new album, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. We we hooked up at the Indie 101 conference recently, which mm-hmm. was really cool. And uh, I'm, I happened to catch your uh, songwriter session, which was really, really cool. Got a lot of good insights and a lot of good stories, which is something you're, you. you're known for. Today, you're a singer-songwriter in, in the kind of narrative country genre, I guess. But earlier, I mean, I, I listened to something today and you said you were, you grew up in the punk scene and then, you know, the Watchmen is kind of hard rock, kind of grungy, mm-hmm. uh, Thornley, that, you know, were you on Come Again? Was that the album you were on? Yeah. That, that's us. Yeah. I mean, that's heavier than, than uh, and I, I'm a big, big Wreck fan. You know, I I see that as being a heavier album than the Big Rec stuff. So I guess the first question is, how do you come from the punk scene to being like a storytelling country artist? Like, how does that transition happen? Um, I guess I've been I've been thinking about that a lot lately, just, you know, just recently turning, you know, into my 50s now. Mm. And I've been thinking back a lot of, you know, like I. There's days that I wake up and I've got my skateboard in the backyard and I kind of look at it and I stand on it for a bit. And my wife says, get off that thing. And I think back to when I was 12 and and, and skateboarding and playing punk rock in in St. John's, Newfoundland, which I did all through my teenage youth uh, growing up. But while I was playing punk rock, I was also listening to um, 80s New Wave. And then there was the stuff that I was hearing from my parents, you know, which was the Johnny Cashes and the Charlie Prides. And the Figgy Duffs, you know, the Harry Hibbs, which is the Newfoundland cultural stuff. And there, there was a heavy element of folk in a lot of those stories. Those, you know, Newfoundlanders are, are known to be storytellers. And a lot of the early music I heard was that narrative form. So, you know, when I came up to Toronto looking to find a band when I was 18, I think, I found a lot of bands. And then I and I played with a lot of them. I played in reggae bands. I played in, in punk bands. I played in pop bands. I played in cover bands. I, I just did everything I could to get to know the scene. And that led me, um, you know, eventually to playing with the Watchmen, a band from Winnipeg. And they were doing something that was very similar to uh, or very inspired by R.E.M., Billy Bragg, bands that I really enjoyed. And they had a, a sort of a fresh sound and it was kind of, it was, it was pretty rock and roll, but it was a, it was a, it, it connected with me. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that band had a, enough success that it kept me going for 20 years. And we still do shows to this day, but you know, we're not an active band. We haven't put out a record in uh, I can't, a long time. You know, and then from there, the Watchmen, we took a band from that came up to Canada from Boston called Big Wreck, and we took them on the road with us for years. And then they put the record out, and then the record became huge. And then we did our final tour across Canada together. We did like a stadium tour. And during that time, Ian met my sister. Uh, they fell in love. They got married. So now Ian's my brother-in-law. And between writing periods for Big Wreck and the Watchmen, me and Ian are hanging, are hanging out at a studio. And we're co-writing some stuff together and one night it turns into hey let's just start a new band and Seiku had a room next door and Seiku was playing drums on all these tracks and his input was there and we just kind of all kind of went yeah you know Seiku was playing with Edwin and the Pressure and uh, some other bands and that turned into you know our first gig didn't even have a name uh, we played at Edgefest in Toronto we opened the show one year and I think they called us Supergroup because we didn't have a name we were just jamming mm-hmm. and, and it was great to be a part of that and then that turned into Thornley and Thornley was heavy and that reminded me of my punk early you know sort of just the drive and the force and being able to play it you know on the stages that we did where I can have sort of like two SVT 810s behind me, just the power of that and just playing with, you know, the intensity that Ian and Seku and Tavis and Paolo and uh, Brian and, and uh, there's a list of guitar players and they've all been wonderful, Chris. Uh, anyways, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was an amazing experience, but it also hit a point where I had my first child and there was, I'd been on the road for almost 25 years, you know, 200, 250, 280 shows a year. And my kids were growing up and I was tired and I was kind of bored and I, the industry was changing and I sort of took a look around and decided to make some changes. And those changes brought on some other changes. And 
you know, I, I went from, I remember sort of one of the last shows I did with Thornley was opening up for Nickelback down in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You know, this, this big arena, outdoor uh, amphitheater show. You know, six months later, I find myself somewhere in a coffee shop in Ontario with an acoustic guitar playing for six people, you know, who are mm-hmm. like having pastries and coffee. I'm like, just, okay, what am I fucking doing? And I really didn't know. <laughs> um, but I knew that I wanted to do stuff that I'd missed so far. And I fell back into the catalog of Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Ron Hines and Nick Drake, Tom Petty, artists like that, and any artists associated with artists like that. And I I did that for a while until I landed a gig with Ron Hines. And I didn't land a gig. He called me out of the blue and said, can you come down to Newfoundland and do 14 shows across the island with me and up through Labrador? And I said, absolutely. It was a childhood dream of mine to even know Ron Hines, let alone get asked to perform with him. And we did it as a duo, just me and him. And I really got to see... A, learning his catalog was was an amazing experience as a songwriter, learning the craft. Like you can hear some of these songs and you go, yeah, that's really easy. But then you actually start to play them and you go, what the, what did he, what just happened there? All these little things. And it's all these little intricacies that make it so beautiful and actually getting to work with Ron and tour with him at a time when I was writing an album called No Dark, No Light. And being able to play those songs for him, a lot of those songs were even written on his guitar, which I borrowed at the end of the night because I was playing bass, so I'd borrow his acoustic. And being able to kind of be literally in his shadow uh, on the stage, uh, listening to, watching him, watching the audience interact with him and watching him interact with the audience, hearing the stories night after night and hearing how they changed and hearing, hearing things get stretched a little bit and, you know, things getting omitted the next night. And it was... It was a fascinating new thing for me because I'd I'd come from a world for so long of power rock, you know, like big sound system, big light show, in some cases pyro, you know, loud, everything's just crazy to, you know, just a guy with a guitar on stage talking to a thousand people Mm. and telling these wonderful stories and then spinning those stories into songs to follow it up. And it was that was just such a a learning experience for me. And I'd already been a musician for so long. I. I'd forgotten how my ego had taken over the fact, you know, that, that I was thinking that I, uh, that I kind of knew enough already. Mm. And then I realized that I, I still had so much to learn. And, and at 52 years old today, I'm, I'm looking ahead to music the same way as when I was 16 years old and I was first playing with punk bands and I was being inspired by bands like DOA uh, and SNFU, Minor Threat and Husker Du. That sort of outlook on there's a whole brand new world and a bunch of new stuff that I want to learn. And I feel like that again now. I feel really inspired. It's it's a it's a weird thing, yeah. And that's kind of the story of of then to now. <laughs> that's awesome. Would you say it's it's a case of your tastes kind of evolving as you grow older? Because I know mine mine definitely have, but I still have those albums when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen that I'll never put down. I'll always listen to those. Yeah, I th- I think for me there there was a period of time up till when I was about seventeen where I played a lot of different music. And I also, mm-hmm. my, my music collection was very, very, it, it was a wide range. You know, on one end, I was very intrigued by the cello suites of Bach. And then there was Bob Dylan and there was Pink Floyd. And then there was a whole bunch of punk stuff. And then there was Loverboy and April Wine. And then all of a sudden came the Boomtown Rats mm-hmm. and Thomas Dolby. And, and, the, and this sort of just evolved. And every time there was a change in the weather, musically in in the in what was happening going from you know the 70s rock and roll into or the 60s rock and roll in the 70s into the punk rock of the late 70s early 80s which turned into new wave living through that it i just i just felt like i had such a a wide range mm. and and that that's always kind of stayed with me and i and and it was so varied back then. I actually find it hard to find new music because uh, I'll hear something. I'll go, oh, that reminds me of, oh, I should listen to my favorite record. And, and that's, <laughs> you know, and that's what that's what it does. So I'm trying to break that habit because there's lots of great artists that are inspired by other people as well. And right. and I've, I've, I've got to start to put more time into uh, into those artists, not just jump back to the familiar. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's get let's get on to the album All Together Now, which is a cover album over 40 musicians and, and features you uh, you've got two daughters that both sing on it is that correct yes that's awesome caitlin and cassidy both sing on the album yes fantastic so it sounds like you know you're describing it, it the the songs came out of stuff that you've loved over the years but how, how did you whittle it down to those those specific songs 
It was a combination of things. I was like when I a few minutes ago when I was talking about when I started doing my singer songwriter thing and you know doing those coffee shops. Mm. There was up till that point I had never really played covers. You know, like I mean, The Watchmen and, and Thornley or Big Wreck, we would sometimes you know we'd pull out a Led Zeppelin tune or something. But I I I never I've always been in bands that were played original music. Mm. But when I started doing these coffee shop things or, you know, whatever they led to, there was always somebody who'd say, hey, do you know such and such? And finally, I, th- I thought, oh, maybe I'll learn one of these songs. And, and, and it was only about that period that I started learning these things. And what I would do is if somebody would say, you know, do you, do you know, and, and they'd sort of request somebody's greatest hit. If I heard that over and over again, I'd, I'd kind of think of who I liked or what songs I liked that that artist did. And it would often be a, 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 a somewhat more obscure track than what they're known for. And that was the covers I started doing when people asked me, you know, for the greatest hits versions. And these ones just sort of had been with me for the last decade or so. And I really wanted to show, you know, because I knew it wasn't going to be a Ken Tizard record because I was asking for the in, input of, you know, 40 odd more people. So I wanted to be able to at least have my my collection of songs be what was on the record. It wanted to be, it had to be something that was personal to me. And, you know, we've, we've got the clash and REM, you know, representing a certain area. We've got George Jones and Neil Young and Bob Dylan sort of doing another thing. We've got the um, Slade Cleves narrative style, Tom Petty and uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, not Leonard Cohen, John Lennon. There's some rock and roll in there. It's just, it sort of covers a little bit of everything, you know, Uh, uh, Billy Bragg kind of represents the, he's on the fence for me whether he's a folk singer or a punk rocker i'm not sure mm-hmm. and uh, i don't really care to put a label on him but i just know that he fits that that part of my world so the 13 songs that ended off on it all have personal meaning to me you know even the boomtown rats tune you know that's just one i remember when my sister introduced me to that song and and when i think about my growing up with an older sister who was you know 3 or 4 years older than me depending on the time of year she had such a great influence. And when I, when I was putting the album together, I wanted to have something from that period as well. So, you know, mm. so each song has its own little story for why it's there. And it's all of the answers relate directly to me and my, uh, you know, possible narcissistic behavior of just mm. wanting things to be all about me. <laughs> right. So, I mean, what, what was the impetus of, of doing the album in the first place? That was, that came out of a, um, a discovery of two things. My, my wife was going through a, a stem cell bone marrow transplant the year before COVID struck. And um, we had to relocate to Ottawa and she went through an extensive um, transplant. Uh, she spent 70 days in a hospital bed in isolation. Wow. And then we had to put ourselves in an isolation bubble after for a year. Mm-hmm. So in that year, I had gotten used to adapting my life to, you know, living in a bubble and being extra clean when I had to go out and all these other things. And I I built a new little mobile studio to go with the studio that I already had at home. And I found ways to communicate with people. And it was a really hard year because I was just on my own doing this while the world was going on. Then COVID hit and I immediately thought about all my friends and my musician friends who are suddenly home and out of work and don't know what to do. And I just kind of threw it out there on Facebook one day. I said, you know, I'm going to record some cover tunes. It'll be a 21-day challenge. That was the idea I had. I said, we're going to do 13 songs in 21 days. If anybody wants to send me tracks, I'll send you out something to play along with, and let's see what happens. And it it, it kind of exploded more than I thought it would. At one point, there was a there was 60 to 70 people who were who were interested that I was in talks with. Some of them had life events that stopped them from being able to contribute, and others, for other reasons, uh, didn't get around to uh, doing it. And I ended off with 45 people mm. on this record. And they they range from professional musician friends that I know from, you know, bands that everybody knows to musicians that I've known since I was a teenager and, you know, and even before that. And these musicians are, you know, they may work jobs, but they still play music all the time. And people that I met through this who reached out to me who I never met before and they said I'm a singer from here or I play guitar and I'm from here can I contribute to a track and I just said yes to everything and and it started it started turning into a big machine mm-hmm. and then uh, Mike Turner reached out to me and he's a guitar player from Canada he plays with a band called Our Lady Peace mm-hmm. and another one called Crash Karma but he's a he's a producer extraordinaire as well and he uh, asked if if he could help out mixing the record for me because the project was getting so big. And I said, absolutely. 
and the, you know, the cast of characters came about and we got the record done. There was, um, there was, there were some hardships. Uh, my, my wife uh, had some more health issues and I had to duck out for a little bit and Mike took over the reins and, and steered the ship into port. And we got, we managed to get 45 people playing on 13 songs. Hmm. Everybody was sent acoustic guitar and, and vocals basically of me. And uh, that was what everybody got. And for the most part, nobody heard what anybody else was doing. And then uh, we got all the pieces back and they, they fell into place and we did some massaging and a little bit of cutting and some editing and, you know, a lot of, a lot of work making sure that everybody's pieces were represented and it still sounded like a band. And at the end of it, it did. And I was blown away, you know, so what started out kind of as a little bit of a social experiment to help some people, you know, pass the time mm. turned into a year long project that, you know, today, actually I'm going to show this because I just got these today. Oh, that's fantastic. This is, I've just opened this one, still smells fresh. So we just got the vinyl in, you know, it, wow. it took, it took, a, cool. took 13 or 14 months from mm -hmm. the idea to turning into this, but, um, wow, what a, what a trip. I didn't expect it to go like this. That's awesome. How, how is your wife now? She's doing fine. Um, she's, um, we're meeting with her team in Ottawa again next week, uh, to discuss all of her cellular level stuff, um, mm -hmm. the stuff that we can't see. Uh, the treatment that she went on was we were expected a, a minimum two year recovery and we're at the two year point now. Uh, she's still, uh, you know, she's uh, she's she's not able to walk and she has one arm that doesn't quite work the way she wants it to. Yeah. But she is getting better very slowly every day. And we just we have a lot of fun hanging out just like we always have. Um, and I'm I, in the last three years of uh, the bubble and then COVID and into this year now. You know, we've built our world here in the house. You know, the, the studio that I'm recording and making records out of is is my old bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the dining room downstairs is her hospital room and it's attached to the kitchen. And we got a TV and a couch there. And I do all the cooking and watching of TV there with her hanging out and I play guitar. And uh, then I come up to the studio at night and I, you know, either I do the broadcast on Wednesdays or I come up and record or hang out and, you know. I miss the world, but uh, we're making the best of what we've got here. And, uh, you know, we, we can't we can't complain too much. We can't complain too much. We're, we're grateful for a lot that we have. That's good to hear. I did hear one thing today. I, you, you had a friend that played bass on one of the tracks and passed away before it was finished. Is that right? Yes. When I was uh, playing in the punk rock scene in St. John's, Newfoundland, there was a fellow bass player by the name of Dean Locke who played mm -hmm. with a in a band called Tough Justice. and um, he skated a little bit as well, but he was a big gentle giant and he was a, he kind of, I always felt safe when Dean was around when we were kids and we maintained our friendship. Um, he'd come out to shows whenever I came through town and he'd recently settled down uh, in, in sort of Northern Ontario. Well, not Northern, but sort of that way of Ontario, mm -hmm. family man, you know, great guy. And we were still in touch. And when the idea came up uh, out to do this record, he reached out, he said, can I play bass on a track? And I said, absolutely. I said, I got the perfect track for you. And he was really excited, but he, he didn't have a home set up. So, you know, I talked him through what he needed and sort of taught him how to get the files the right way and stuff. And he ended off getting the bass line in. And before the, before the track was even finished or mixed, the, he, had, uh, he had passed away uh, very suddenly uh, from an accident. Mm. And um, yeah, he never even got to hear it. And, and this was the first time he was going to be on a record. He was really happy for that. Yeah. And he was really excited just to be a part of it. And it was the first, this is the first time we'd ever sort of made a record or recorded a track together. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really sad thing, but the, the album, you know, the album is dedicated to his memory and um, I'm really happy. And his, and his wife and mother and sisters and brother, all the family are really happy and really grateful and, and they love the, the recording as well. And uh, it's a great memory of him. Mm. Oh, sorry about that. And yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a really great, you know, legacy to have, have that for, for, for his family. You know, that's great. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's talk about your Wednesdays, Whiskey Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. You go live every week. Yeah. So that that came out of the uh, the coffee shop thing you used to do. Is that correct? No, the whiskey, the, the the coffee shop thing was like maybe twelve years ago. Mm. And I've I've you know I've since formed several bands and put records out and done tours. You know, it, it's been sort of everything from kind of semi semi country rockabilly where I played pedal steel and sang, which was a really uh, interesting show uh, to, you know, more folky stuff, but it's, it's just been evolving, but it was only live. I was very against anything on the internet. Like even, even when I was, 
you know, doing my Whiskey Wednesday, which is started 11 years ago at a, at a pub here in town. It's a little pub. It's got a capacity of 28 people. It's, a, it's like a living room, but it's absolutely mm. amazing. And they have everything. Anyways, years ago, I used to go down and drink on Wednesdays and spoke to the owner and said, you know, bring your guitar down and play for me and the bartender and whoever's around. And, you know, you can have your drinks for free. And I'm like, yeah, I'm here anyways. And yeah. it just sort of turned into that. And Within a few months, the room was full, and then we had to bring a PA in. And then once we got the PA in, we started having bands on other nights. And it, and it got up to a point where there was live music there uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday afternoon. Huh. And now with COVID, of course, that's all gone. But but the Whiskey Wednesday thing I did there for years. But even when I was doing that, I would say, you know, hey, folks, you know, no video of the show, if you don't mind. Or, uh, you know, no, no broadcasting. We're sitting in a small room. It's just like, it's, just, it's weird. And I was kind of I was kind of afraid of it. And even even in my year of of, of isolation pre COVID, uh, I had thought about doing some things online, and and the 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 permanence of of going live online terrified me. You know, you screw up when you're playing a live show. You can kind of cover it, and nobody really notices. Even if you do it really bad, it's gone in a second. The permanence of the internet really freaked me out. Mm. I didn't like the idea of presenting something that I hadn't seen and been edited because that's the world. That's the world of you know rock and roll and commercial rock that I grew up in. Like everything went through so many different stages of approval before it got used as an image that the band you know was recognized for. So there was a, there was a reason I was talking randomly about bands' images before. Remind me again where, where my train was going here. <laughs> because of Whiskey Wednesdays. Oh, right. On yes. The yeah. So when COVID hit and that's when everybody was home and that was the first time I did a live broadcast. And I think the first live broadcast, I just I said to my daughter, I said, do you know how to do Facebook live? And she said, I think you just press the live button. And I said, I'm going to sit on the couch here. Can you just press the live button and, you know, we'll do Wednesday night instead of the pub. I'm just going to do it here. I'm just going to talk to people and play a few songs. And it was really the way I introduced the show was I said, hey, everybody's kind of home and everybody's kind of freaked out right now and everybody's living online. So if I can give you an hour a week where we don't talk about what's happening, you know, I, I, I may make brief mention of something, but it, this isn't going to be about what's going on. This is just a time where I'm going to tell you some stories and play some tunes and uh, let's hang out. And the response I got was amazing. And I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I immediately fell in love with the idea of just doing it every Wednesday and developing it. And then I started getting more ideas for, you know, multiple cameras and how to get the sound better. And, and I've sort of rejigged my studio around that here so I can do solo Wednesday nights or I can have the duo or the full band here. When the COVID restrictions are lifted again in a few weeks, I'll be able to have the full band back here and we'll be doing the Wednesdays with the band. Some nights, you know, last night I did a revisit of a time when I worked at Music Express magazine as the photo editor back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. And, you know, I, I, I talked for an hour and a half about the people that I met and, and the friends that I made and, and the job that I did. And I interspersed it with songs that were all kind of directed at those people, you know, according to stuff they'd like. And, and just being able to do that type of stuff and connect with people. I mean, I get a lot out of it. I mean, mm. you know, I, I, people I get a lot of messages saying, I hope you keep doing it. You know, it's 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 nice that it's a regular Wednesday and it happens every Wednesday and it's consistent and it's, it's, man, it's, it's therapy for me too. <laughs> you know, it's great to play music for people, but I get to talk and ramble and, and tell my life as well. And, uh, you know, it's a huge thing for me. I love it. That's fantastic. You know what I didn't do when I first started, I didn't ask you why you started playing in the first place. I did hear a story about you playing, trying to learn a solo mm. I think it was a Judas Priest song on the bass because you didn't know what a bass was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was in grade eight or nine when the idea that I wanted to become a musician hit me. Mm. And the idea actually didn't come anything from music. It came from, there was a, in, the, in the Avalon Mall in St. John's, Newfoundland, there was a games arcade. And this is where I'd, I'd get on the bus on my Saturday mornings and I, me and my friends, and we'd go to the mall and, you know, you'd each have four or eight quarters and you'd spend the day sort of walking around the mall and playing random video games and one day i was there with my buddy mike anderson and there was a guy playing galaga which most people now know for your, from your phone it's one of those good shoot em, shoot em apps and he had and it had the joystick and the red button so his he, you know he had the joystick and the red button and it was on a black 
you know, the, the front of the machine was black and then there was the big LED screen. And on his hands, he had leather gloves with the fingers cut off hmm. and studs on each knuckle and studs down the back and stuff. And he had a, a jean jacket with the sleeves torn off. And that was the first time I'd seen anything like that. I can't remember how old I was. So I was still pretty young, but I was just like, that's crazy. I'm like, why is, why is that? That's that. And I thought for some reason, I thought that looks cool. And I remember shortly after that being in the drugstore at the Avalon mall again, during our wandering around. And I, and I saw circus magazine, the old rock and roll magazine. And mm -hmm. uh, I think Iron, I think Bruce Dickinson was on the cover and he was covered in leather and studs. Mm -hmm. And I took this information and I, went to my local record store and I bought an Iron Maiden record. And that was how I discovered metal. Nice. And that was when I decided I wanted to be a musician. So I knew, so I was listening to stuff like Judas Priest, Dio, you know, Sabbath, Ozzy, of course, all that sort of commercial, but heavy rock and roll music. And it all had a, it all had a flair of, you know, twisted sister to it as well. There was a lot of smoke and mirrors and, and makeup and hair, mm -hmm. but I was fascinated by it. And I wanted to be a part of whatever that was. And that, and I'd always liked music and I thought, well, yeah, this is a good thing. I'm going to get an electric guitar. And I was, I had just, I guess I must've been in grade eight. I had just landed the babysitting job with our new neighbor, the house up from my parents' house. She had just moved down from Toronto with two small kids and she was a nurse. She had just split up with her husband, I think it was. And she had moved to St. John's for whatever reason. And the deal was I was going to babysit for her for the summer uh, to help her with the shifts when she needed. Mm -hmm. And that was going to be my summer job. And she asked me what I was saving for one night. And I said, I wanted an electric guitar. And she said, oh, my ex-husband or husband was a guitar player. She said, I actually bought him one for his birthday, but we broke up. You know, they had, I think they had broken up before she had given it to him and she brought it down with her and it was in the closet. Uh -huh. So she brought out this massive electric guitar and I went, this thing is incredible. And I, I, I took it home to sort of play it a little bit. And my cousin had a guitar amp and I, I plugged this thing into a guitar amp and it was all distorted and it just sounded, you know, and so this was pre-internet and, you know, sort of living in, in Newfoundland, there wasn't a lot of resources for, for me in my life with whatever, what was going on. So I thought it was just a guitar and I wanted to play all the stuff I was hearing. And, and one day I was sitting in my room and I was trying to get the bass to play. I think you're right. It might've been a Judas Priest solo. And my sister's friend, my older sister, Paula, who I mentioned earlier, she had a friend in town, a guy named Chris Broadbeck from a Canadian band called Sea Spot Run. They are still together to this day. Hmm. And he said to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just trying to learn this solo. He said, but that's not what the bass is doing. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you're playing a bass guitar. And I'm like, what? And, and I was just, I was flabbergasted. I said, well, what does the bass do? And then he kind of showed me what the bass line was doing. And I, I was just, I was like, okay, this isn't cool at all. That's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> and he said, no, the bass has four strings. You know, it's not a six string. And then I thought, oh yeah, my buddy Mike's got a guitar. I think there's more strings on it. I was still very new to this. Mm. Anyway, so he said, check out Stanley Clark and Jaco Pistorius, go to the record stores, get some of their albums. He said, if you want to play bass, interestingly, he said, you know, listen to these guys. And that, that turned me on to jazz fusion, which led me down a, a crazy, you know, exploration of, of all things bass for the majority of my, uh, my, uh, my existence. But yeah. So when I first had my guitar, I didn't, I didn't know what I had. <laughs> Thanks to Chris from C-Spot Run for pointing that, pointing me on the right road. That's great. Chris from C-Spot Run is on this record. He plays bass and he sings as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's quite a um, a jump into the fire if he's pointing out, you know, Stanley Clark and Jacko. Well, he, <laughs> he, he realized that I wasn't really interested in, you know, playing eighth notes. <laughs> right. Well, no, there you go. When when I was listening to you talk about songwriting at the Indie 101, you, you did, I think I asked, was there anyone that you'd written about that, uh, you know, a, a character in real life. And you told a story about a guy that had some land that was being taken away. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a pretty interesting story because because I think that the, the point of my question was, had you ever written a story about some character that you didn't know and then later on found out more about them? And I guess you met mm. that guy later on and he was in the video or something. Well, I did meet him later. Yeah, I was inspired to write a song. There was a farmer just north of Trenton, which is about, about 30, 35 kilometers from me. 
so our news our news cycles would would overlap you know like I, i'd get some of the news from down there and they'd get some of the news from up here and, and periodically i kept reading about this gentleman named frank myers who had a farm the airbase in trenton was expanding and they were taking over all the farmland that they needed for the expansion so they were buying everybody out and frank was a third generation farmer and his son as well was farming uh, on the family land and the government refused to you know to let him keep it and eventually they came in and they 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 you know they loaded empty freight containers around the land and parceled off the the actual house that him and his wife were still living in and then they went in and they bulldozed the, like the farm the all the farm structures that that Frank had built with his dad and his grandpa mm. and they you know they they paid him they paid his lawyer a fair market value or whatever it was for the farm and i that inspired me to to write this song one day i i, I saw him he was doing a TV thing, another local TV thing, and I saw it. And he was he was standing, he was just standing there in, in kind of his his mud boots with his overalls on, and he was telling his story. And, and he was, you know, he was up to his knees in mud. He's, he's like he, this. This is just this is what he does. He lives in this dirt, and he's just crying on TV, talking about the government just taking his land, even though he doesn't want to sell it. And I, I sat down, and, and and the the first line of the song, "Mud on My Boots." just came out when I hit an E chord. And from there, I wrote this sort of five minute song, which was, it was just called Mud on My Boots and Ode to Frank Myers. And I kind of, I started playing it around locally and, and word sort of caught out about this, the, this song that I'd written and everybody started talking about it. And, and I decided to go uh, record it at a friend of mine's studio and, and shoot, shoot the recording process and make a little video out of it. And the studio was a place called Sly Fi Chapel, which is in Trenton. It's an old church that Brent Bodrug had got and turned into the studio. And while I was down recording that song and we had the video there because we were making the video, Frank Myers heard we were in town and came by. And it turns out it was the church that he used to go to when he was like when he was from when he was born to when he was five years old. Mm. And he hadn't been there since he was five years old and he was 86 years old now returning to the church. And there's this guy in there, me, with a band recording a song that I've mm. written about him. And I sat down on the couch and I played it for him the first time that he heard the entire thing and he started crying and, and we, it was just, it was an amazing thing. And, and he, he was so happy with just the, the picture that I'd painted in the song and the way it was represented. And we did some press together, you know, I took him out to some radio interviews and stuff. So we, we, we spent a little bit of time together. And, and the last time I spoke to him, he said that the, he still hadn't cashed the check. Uh, he was still fighting it. He still wasn't going to give up. And, and then he, he passed away shortly after that. So the song lives on and the farm is still mm. there. And you know what the, the sad thing is they haven't done the expansion yet. So they didn't need to even do all this, you know? Wow. So it's, it's, I try not to get too political. Hmm. I don't try not to get political. I'm just, I'm not a very political person. I have a, I have a way that I see the world and I, I kind of keep it to myself because I don't think any, a lot of people would understand it. And I, I really think that I probably wouldn't understand what's going on in other people's heads truly and really. So whenever you put institutions and structures and labels on things a little bit too much, it scares me. So that's why I said that. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. At the end, I'm going to request playing Mad World because obviously Tears for Fears, they're definitely in my DNA because my parents had a couple of cassettes and I was hearing yeah. them and I've I've always listened to those guys, uh, love Tears for Fears. And your version is is excellent. Thank you. That That's actually a fairly, I know you said you, you, you sometimes go after the more obscure songs, but that one is probably one of their better known songs. Not in part by the, uh, I've forgotten the guy's name, but the acoustic cover that somebody put out. The Gary Jules. That's the right, yeah. yeah. What is it about that particular song that, that inspired you? That one, Tears for Fears, again, my sister had a cassette of The Hurting, and I had heard mm -hmm. bits of it, and I... My sister played in a band when I was young and she was young. She played in a band called Parental Guidance and they were an 80s new wave band. They did sort of, you know, all the images in Vogue and Big Country and Bronsky Beat, you know, you know all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't old enough to get into the bars. So they made me the band Lighting Guy. <laughs> so at like 14, I think, or even maybe younger, I was, you know, tagging around with this band as the Lighting Guy. So I'd get to get into the bar and I could see what was happening. You know, I, I wasn't allowed to go down and get drunk and stuff, but, you know, people would always obviously sneak me a beer here and there. But I remember being at a place called Club Max. This was the first time I'd been at Club Max. And Club Max was kind of like the Thunderdome of 
dancing and drinking in St. John's, Newfoundland. Like it was, you know, a big thing in the eighties. Uh-huh. I had gotten in there with my sister. I can't remember if she snuck me in the back door or something, but anyways. And I remember hearing, hearing Mad World on the major big dance speaker system uh, in this club. And it just, it floored me. Uh, and I've, you know, I've been a fan of them ever since. And then with the Gary Jules thing, you know, reappearing all those years later for the Donnie Darko soundtrack. Uh, and then again, the sort of, I had done a, a weird bass cover of it years back, which happened at the same time as the Xbox campaign where they used the, uh, the Gary Jules version and his wasn't on iTunes, but my mine was, so everybody was hearing it on the TV commercials and then uh, looking it up, but they were finding my version. So I, I ended off getting a really good count on that song for a while, nice. but yeah, sort of when I thought tears for fears, it was kind of like, yeah, that's the one that's kind of reappeared in my life on several uh, different levels. So cool. All right, let's move into the non-quickfire question round that I like to do. Uh What significant negative experience have you overcome and what did that teach you? I think the most significant negative experience that I I think I'm still actually overcoming it is understanding, getting a clear focus of how I am, how I impact other people's lives, bad and good. I can be an asshole a lot of the time. I I have OCD. I'm a strangely perfectionist guy, even though I live in a chaotic world as a musician, uh, where even in the nicest studio, there are cables everywhere and it drives me insane. So I I, kind of live on the, the, I live in a, a strange place a lot of the time. So trying to really come to terms with how I treat and interact the outside world, because sometimes I'll say something and my, you know, even my daughter will go, man, that was so rude. And I'm like, Oh, I said, no, no, I was just answering a question. I didn't mean that to sound rude. And she's like, yeah, that was, and it's so like, I'm trying to work on that. And I, and it embarrasses me as I'm working on it. Cause I think back to when I was younger and sort of some of the things I did, and I think back to things that I said to people and mm-hmm. like, yeah, I've, I've still got a lot of learning and correcting to do. And that's inspired me as well on a different level too, with the, with the amount of news that we've had. And by news, I don't mean news. I mean, new information mm-hmm. that's really clearly demonstrated to me my, um, and it could be a maturity thing or an age thing, but I'm, I'm starting to, starting to question what I know about the world in ways that, um, I'm realizing my own ignorance in so many ways and trying to, trying to deal with that. I think that's a really, it's been a really important thing for me a lot in the last, you know, five years. Yeah. So I don't really know what the outcome of that's going to be. Um, but you know, I guess just trying to be a better person, maybe that's the simplest way to say it. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing. So what major positive experience has given you the push to follow this journey? Again, it has to do with my social interaction with the outside world. And, you know, and I keep referring to the outside world because I've I've been, you know, sort of in a strange place for going into the third year. Mm. When Allison got sick and had to leave her job and my touring schedule became impossible to manage, the support that we got, you know, from friends and neighbors into people in the community that we kind of new, but really didn't. And then also out through the community of people that have been associated with music that I've done in various different projects from folk to rock or country or whatever it may be, how they know me. There was a major outpouring of support, you know, a lot of, a lot of people sending me very positive thoughts and just sharing stories. And it just, it really tuned me into the, the significance of the people around me and what, how my life has been impacted by all of them. Like I can, I can go back and kind of pick one person and think about it and say, okay, if this person hadn't introduced me to this person, then all of this wouldn't happen. Right. It's kind of a neat exercise sometimes. I do that a lot, but yeah, it's, it's, it's great to see how it all ties together. The, the people that have, have just been there to support me and, and it's been a big eye opener, which has been really nice. That's fantastic. That speaks volumes to being, just being mindful of, of everything going on and people, yeah, the people in your life and the things going on. So that's that's fantastic. Final question is, what does music mean to you? Hmm. I I think I'll I'll use a Bob Dylan uh, reference for this one. Bob Dylan has been with me my you know my entire music life. I was listening to him you know at the time that I discovered music. I was listening to him at the time when I discovered playing music. I was listening to him when I discovered love. I was listening to him when I discovered heartbreak. I was listening to him when my children were born. I was listening to him when my parents died. And I listened to him today. And the thing is, he's kind of left a, he's left a, a, a date mark 
or a date stamped set of songs that have documented his life and in ways, you know, just kind of told a story of what's going on in his life. I don't know anything about Bob Dylan or his songwriting process. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not meaning to, to profess I know anything. I'm just saying in my mind, he's left a story that's followed my life. Mm -hmm. And during my first heartbreak, I listened to his heartbreak songs. And when I had a friend die, I listened to his songs. When my kids were born, I listened to his songs. Like I said, there's so many of these relationships and music for me is leaving some kind of a, a document uh, in musical form. People get known for lots of things and they're remembered for lots of things. And I think for me, music is my way of documenting my life's journey. You know, I mean, I know of memories and stuff will always live on in the hearts of loved ones, but uh, to be able to do it where you're leaving a memory with, with, with a large amount of people and it's something that you're passionate about, which music is kind of, it's all I've really ever done. Yeah, I, I hope at the end of the day, you know, when I, when I look back at everything I've done musically, it, it kind of, it, it dates everything for me. You know, sometimes somebody will say, what year was such and such? And I'll go, well, that was the year that this album came out. And it's just like, it's just, mm. it's like my calendar, maybe. <laughs> right. That That's killer. Yeah. So if people want to get in touch and find, you know, find your music, you know, find out what you're about, uh, where can they go? Well, KenTizzard.com, you know, that's where I put all the central hub of everything, but it's a website. So it's boring like every other website. If you're looking for something specific and you want a picture or a name or you want to read the bio or watch the videos, it's all there. But social media is really where, where everybody seems to be hanging out these days. Mm -hmm. And I embrace all of them. You know, there's Ken Tizzard on Facebook, Ken Tizzard Music on Facebook. Uh, same thing at YouTube, Twitter and Instagram or K Tizzard because somebody else had Ken Tizzard. But yeah, like you can kind of, you can put K Tizzard into anything and I'll, I'll probably pop up. Music's on Spotify, uh, it's on iTunes, it's on all that stuff. It's not available on CD, it's only available on vinyl. I uh, just got them today. I'm so happy to start putting those out in the mail tomorrow. Yeah, you know, and, and I also, I kind of, part of living music and life the way I do is I kind of live online. So, you know, if you're one of those folks who likes to sort of hang out and watch go watch what's going on and, and you know, be a part of it, you know, I kind of chat and hang out with everybody all the time. So it's there's nothing better to be doing, you know, <laughs> a lot of people sitting home alone, just, you know, with nothing to do. I'm, I'm glad to have something to do. Fantastic. All right. So at the end, I, I like to, we actually already mentioned this, unless you, unless there's another song that you'd like, you really like to put out, I'd like to uh, play Mad World because I think it's a great cover. That's totally cool. Great song. Awesome. Any, any cool stories about, uh, that we haven't covered about Mad World? about the recording process or anyone involved in that particular song? Yeah, well, when we did Mad World, that one that one sort of turned into a, a strange little um, little massive thing. <laughs> I was talking with uh, my buddy Tommy, plays bass with a another Canadian band called Headley. And Tommy was uh, was already we was going to play on Powderfinger and uh, we were talking about some other songs and we were talking about Mad World and he said, well, "Why don't why don't you ask Daniel to play drums on this? That'd be really heavy." And I said, I said, yeah, I said, Dan, it'd be great. I said, but I'm, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be bugging people to play on the record. Like I want it to be, I want everybody here to be sort of coming into it organically. And I don't want to start reaching out to people. And he said, well, he said, I'm talking to him later today. He said, I'll just mention it and see what happens. And I said, sure. I said, but I don't want to be a bother to anybody. And he called me that night and he said, Daniel's in. And he said, so, so let's start with this, you know, so we've got, you know, Daniel who, is an amazing, amazing drummer. He's got an incredible history in in in, in rock and roll uh, in the last bunch of decades. And from there, we 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 brought in everything else. And that song had a real direction right off the top, and and it was all based around the drums that Daniel Adair sent to us. And that that was a that was a neat one. Yeah, that one that was one where we we where we followed. You know, I kind of knew what I was doing, but the rest of the feel and the and the intent of the uh, of the arrangement uh, came from Daniel's drum parts, uh, which was a really neat way to, to do a song. That's killer. I, I really like the kind of birds wrecking back sound at the beginning. Yeah. That, that, that's a nice touch too. Thank you. I do like that. All right. So this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Continued success and, and, you know, please stay in touch. Well, thanks for, thanks for chatting, Simon. It was nice to meet you at the uh, Indie 101 conference and uh, really nice to reconnect again. I appreciate it every time everybody wants to hear about the music and hear me ramble as I tend to do. So <laughs> apologies for the rambling. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's been really nice chatting. Thank you so much for listening. 
I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, as this really helps get the word out about the podcast, so other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians' community collectively learns, the stronger we will become. A rising tide lifts all ships. This episode is sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering a full range of apparel decoration and promotional items, such as screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and much more. The Skinny Armadillo is now offering a merch fulfillment service, including on-demand printing and a custom-built web store, so you can concentrate on your music and running your business as a musician. Visit theskinnyarmadillo.com or call 817-546-1430 to learn how the Skinny Armadillo can help you take your merch to the next level. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Ken Tizard with a cover of Tears for Fears, Mad World. <laughs> 